I believe representation matters so, so much. And that's why I also believe when people talk about training of being anti-racist, I understand how difficult that is until you actually immerse yourself in that environment. And when we talk about stepping into other people's shoes, it's not enough to just talk about it. You won't be able to understand how that group of community feels until you actually live there, until you actually ate the same kind of food, until you actually interact with the same kind of people. Then you can truly say, well, I'm being really empathetic. You're listening to the Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets of success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Dennis, welcome to the show. Welcome to Big Asian Energy. How are you doing? Good to see you again, John. Very nice to be here. <laughs> no, this is great. I think the best thing about this is that, so obviously John and I had various conversations before this recording, and I've always enjoyed talking to John, so Thanks. I don't mind this as take two or take three. I'm just going to risk for another 45 minutes an hour. Let's do it. Okay. So for the listeners who don't know who you are and what you do yet, can you give a quick rundown of what you do in your own words? Sure. So my name is Dennis Yao Yu. I am based in the Bay Area. We recently moved up to the Bay two years ago from Los Angeles, where I spent the majority of my life. I was born in Taiwan. I yeah. came here with my mother when I was about 12 years old. Sort of typical immigrant story. We can definitely dig into that later on. And I have spent majority of my career in retail, commerce, and technology. That's awesome. And right now, I understand your one of your big projects is this otherness group. Can you tell me a little bit about what this is that you're currently starting up or leading? Sure. Yeah, it's it really came about organically, I would say. And I think it stemmed from various points. One is my aspiration and intent and interest in helping people within our community, specifically in Asian American community or Asian Canadian community communities or API, based on my own sort of life experience and also my career experience, which is quite different. And so sure. when we use the word other a lot of times, I think a lot of people can't relate to that. Just being the other in the room or get othered, however you want to use it. Oftentimes or not, we think of it as something negative. The way I've seen it, surely we can't deny that being other in a room is a positive thing. But I would say from my own experience, being the other in various points of my life in different situations actually have really helped me cultivate and understand myself a lot better and also understand what kind of unique proposition or strengths I can bring to the table, whether it's at work or just personal lives. And I hope those types of mindset or reframing could help other people think about things the wrong way. Think about things a different way that can really help them from a positive standpoint. Love it. And how would you describe what you're doing? Is it like a training program? Is it a organization? What is otherness group? Yeah, so good question. Without going into my sort of USC MBA like framework of mindset, <laughs> I'm going to give you something right now. And what, what reason is because I think it's something, it's more of a vision. It's a North Star. It's a movement. So... Mm. It can go different ways. And two is there are some things I'm working on right now. I will talk a little bit probably in a later stage once things are a little bit more formalized. But I would say what it is right now, essentially, it's something that I talk about, whether it's um, podcasts such as this one or external speaking engagements 
what workshops I do to really, and the end goal is to inspire other people to get inspired mm-hmm. themselves. That's a very sort of high level thing. And what does that look like on the very tactical level of business sort of model level is right now it's content, right? It's content creation. It's a community gathering and it could be something else later, whether it could be more of a learning courses or workshops and so on. But we will see. But right now I am leaving it out to the world and get into the wild and see how the audience or how they see see how the community reacts. That's great. So- So it sounds like right now you're doing a lot of corporate speaking and training around teaching people what it is to be an other. Now, this is an interesting term because you and I have talked about it and I've heard about it, especially in spaces where we talk about diversity, we talk about especially in corporate spaces. How would you, in your own words, explain what it means to be an other? Because that's not something that we oftentimes identify ourselves. We don't wake up in the morning being like, hey, I'm a lawyer and hi, I'm an accountant and hi, I'm an other. What does being an other mean? The other, I think... At the very sort of specific term or technical term, a lot of times we describe somebody as being the other, maybe due to their background, maybe due to their experience, maybe due to the way they look, or maybe due to their race, age, and gender, and on, right? But the way I look at it is obviously just being an Asian American, growing in America, going through different types of neighborhoods and different types of experiences. The other is a type of feeling that you in a very more bigger sense. So it's mm-hmm. bigger in the Asian American community, I would say. It's anytime you feel like you're the only one that really stands out and somehow because of you being so unique in that situational environment that you're being negatively impacted. So mm. it's more of a feeling. And I think a lot of people, it definitely would resonate for a lot of people, whether you're Asian American, you're Black or Hispanic or different ages, those situations do come about. But at the very core level and for the conversation we're talking about, about it's true like for asian americans whether you are in a corporate situation where you're the only executive in the room or you're the only female on mm-hmm. the board or if you are in the industry that's majority white male or just white what does that mean for you and how do you use that to stand out among the crowd and make sure that you're being recognized you're being promoted that you are yeah you are shining at, you know, with what you have the most. Got it. So like when we're thinking about an environment, and I'm sure this is something that's relatable to a lot of people, especially if you're listening to a show like Big Asian Energy, is when you're looking around a room, it could be a classroom, it could be an office, it could be an interview, it could be an audition. And you're looking around the room and you're going, hey, wait a second, I am the only blank of this group. I'm the only visible minority, Asian American. I'm the only woman, man, trans, whatever it is that in that moment you recognize. So the other is essentially what it sounds like, how it affects us and how that might even interfere with our sense of belonging, our sense of progress, promotions, job opportunities. Is that kind of the focus of what it is that you talk about? Oh, I will say definitely I'll pick E in the- uh, All the above? (laughs) All the above you just mentioned. If you don't mind, I'll go through a little bit more of a sort of storytelling form in terms of like where this came about and also like how- Yeah. How did you get here? This is fascinating because my understanding is you went to business school. You didn't start up going, let me tackle this feeling of the world. How did your career path lead to this moment here? Sure. So like I mentioned, I immigrated here to the United States 
specifically to Orange County in LA with my mother at the age of 12. At that time, when we first came here, Orange County at that time, we actually settled in Laguna Niguel, which is close to Laguna Beach. It's a beautiful area. It's predominantly white. And especially back in the days, it was very monoculture. For sure. Mm -hmm. I went to a school where I was one of the two Asian kids at school. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the other Asian kid who happened to be Chinese was tasked to show me around the school, which was great. Except at that time, and notice, like, I didn't speak a word of English at that time. So there was another sort of hurdle I had to get over, which is learning the language. And obviously, that's a big part of it. And I went through all the things that, you know, that you can think of, whether it's bullying, whether it's discrimination, all those things. I think kids are just kids. And so at that time, we when you're talking about just being in the environment of being the other, that's my, I would say the first major point of my life experience of feeling the other. Obviously I stood out quite a bit. I was one of two Asian kids. I didn't speak yeah. the language, so I didn't have to do the homework like other kids. And like typical sort of jokingly, I was the best at math. And there's, <laughs> you know, of course. I remember when I finished math test within five minutes and people are in awe. So it's going to take light in. You were making my life more difficult than I think you could have imagined, man. Everyone just looked at me and thought I was supposed to be good at math. And I was terrible at math. That's good. So at least you didn't fit into the stereotype. But, uh, no, I was the balance. I was the one who balanced. I dragged the the overall GPA down for all of us out there. My apologies, guys. You probably pull me up with the <laughs> But yeah, it was a very interesting experience and being in, a, in that environment. I just remember going to the library every single day and really have to self-taught myself the language by reading a book a day. Like that was my right. goal. So that was like the first major situation where I feel like I was the other. Not shortly after about a year and a half or so, we moved on to St. Gabriel Valley. And for those mm -hmm. that know, St. Gabriel Valley is obviously known for a large Asian population in the area area that includes cities like Monarch Park, San Gabriel, Arcadia, and so on. And that's where I grew up, which is great. I really enjoyed it. And I went to school, majoring in econ at UC Irvine. And when I got out of school, actually in between so late on in school, I actually got really into hip hop. The music. Mm. And at that time, it was when you think about Notorious D.I.G. Classic. Yeah. Tupac, the Snoop. And at that time, yeah. it was the era of East against the West. So it was really, I would just call it golden era of hip hop. I took a really personal interest in hip hop because I think on one end, to me, hip hop is an immigrant story. Interesting. Know, right? Hip hop is about, it's a genre that should have never been mainstream. It was never meant to be mainstream. It was a music yeah. form that was developed in New York. On the blocks with some boombox, people break dancing, and then somehow he evolved and got commercialized. So to me, that was very similar to immigrant stories where we were not supposed to be what we were, but we made our own way. So there's a lot of sort of that entrepreneurial, you know, sort of Asian American building your own future type mm -hmm. of parallel path that I really resonated with. So I got so interested in it. I started interning, even though I was a finance major, I started interning at the hip hop magazine called the Source Magazine at that time. And Source Magazine mm -hmm. at that time, the major media. I was in the industry helping them develop different award shows that were shown on TV. And you can imagine being an Asian American in that environment, in the hip hop. You mean being an Asian American, being in a hip hop company, like a hip hop focused culture. I'm guessing there 100%. wasn't that many Asian coworkers on your team. <laughs> no, I actually just remember maybe one or two at that time. It was the editor right. that uh, the magazine that was Asian. And that was like the landscape. There weren't too many Asian people. But we loved it. And I loved it because of the music, because of the culture. And you can imagine me being an Asian person within a sea of like tens of thousands of Black Americans at a war show. And that's another second point that I remember distinctly as being the other. Hmm. So after that, 
Like I mentioned, I worked at Merrill Lynch for a while and I pivoted my career into retail. I started working for a denim company based in Virginia. Once again, talking about being the other, I grew up in Los Angeles, a company, a denim company in Norfolk, Virginia, which is the southern part of Virginia, relocated me from LA to Virginia. And that was a small story by itself. But at that time, Virginia, that part of Virginia was known for Confederate flags, pickup oh. trucks. Hmm. You know, it was your typical sort of Southern culture. When I right. went there, the downtown of Norfolk probably had 10 to 20 retail, and that was called the hotspot. And hmm. what people did on Fridays, instead of going to clubs at K-Town or Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard, people hmm. used to go, they go to Applebee's. Hmm. And so think about somebody who just came out in the 20s. And for me, it was quite a bit of culture shock. Once again, that's another point of being the other. There was mm-hmm. a very big moment I remember when racism was so rampant, like the, the whole mindset. There was one time when I walked into the room, I remember my manager asked me, hey, Dennis, do you know Kung Fu? Oh, wow. And no, this is a Black American that, that asked mm-hmm. me the question. I was shocked. And when I looked around the room, my coworkers were shocked. But he asked the question in a so innocent, yet naive and ignorant way. I responded by telling him, I said, no, I don't. And he mm. actually came back and said, why not? Oh, man. Yeah. And that was the environment I spent my next two years in. There was a kind of cultural ignorance is what it sounds like. And I think this is important to note is that it didn't sound like what he was saying was deliberately antagonistic. Like he wasn't trying to put you down. It didn't seem like. But I think a lot of people, when we talk about the idea of what Asian-based racism experience, and, and I use that word carefully because I think even the word racism carries a lot of meaning and power. And what we're really pointing out in oftentimes we say these as microaggressions, is that while the intention behind it may not be to put you down, it is still creating an experience. It's still creating an effect. And the effect is that, hey, you look like this group of people, and I'm going to assume that you have all these same traits as opposed to somebody else who doesn't look like that. I wouldn't make the same assumptions about. No, that's absolutely true. And going back to your point of him not being antagonistic, I think that's absolutely right. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask me why not. He wouldn't follow up with a why not question, right? It's the same situation. Once again, that's why I believe representation matters so much. And that's why I also believe when people talk about training of being anti-racist, I understand how difficult that is until you actually immerse yourself in that environment. And when we talk about stepping into other people's shoes, it's not Mm -hmm. enough to talk about it. Like you want be able to understand how that group of community feels until you actually live there, until you actually eat the same kind of food, until you mm-hmm. actually interact with the same kind of people, then you could truly say, I'm being really empathetic. Like in a sense, though, and in a complex issue like racism, I think unfortunately that is one way of dealing with it, and unfortunately it's not the easiest way. But that's how we can relate to other people. My former manager knows, yeah, not all Asian people know kung fu, and there is a reason why. I think it's all learning moments for everyone. And yeah. funny enough, I wish I had no kung fu. That's my. <laughs> Yeah. That, that's my I actually did want to learn Kung Fu when I was a kid. Yeah, I think my mom sent me up for Taekwondo classes and I took some Judo classes and I really enjoyed it. And I think it's something I also enjoy because it's part of my culture, but it's the assumptions that I think can make me feel just because I look like this doesn't mean I'm good at math or <laughs> I know Kung Fu. Yeah, I hope I'm not letting down any of my ancestors down right now. Okay, so you went from this company in the jeans company and then my understanding is that later on you went to work for Shopify right? And that's where you started or led a certain group. That's the next part. So yes, 
I think I've always had this desire. I've always had this innate passion to learn about cultures. And mm. I mentioned, obviously, moving around different neighborhoods, being sure. in cultures. Like, that was a big part of me. And that's just personal interest. So I've always been pretty sensitive in terms of delving into what does it mean to be Asian American? And what does it mean to be Asian American at work? And what does it mean to be a leader who is of Asian descent? Hold on, hold on. I want to hear more about these three questions because they're great questions. Let's start with that last one. What does it mean to be an Asian American leader? Or the second one, what does it mean to be an Asian American at work? I've never thought of this before. I don't wake up and be like, I'm going to put on my Asian American clothes. No, absolutely. I think that's how a lot of people feel as well. But I think it's more so on what is your identity? How does your identity intersect with what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? We spend the majority of the time working in an office than sometimes spending with our family. Your identity is who you are. And I think compared to 10 years ago, now we have more discussion in terms of how do you bring yourself to work. That's another hot topic, I would say. I would just say, you know, I have certain takes and perspectives about what do you bring to work and what do not. But from an identity standpoint, I think as a good leader and as somebody who is perhaps even an entrepreneur, your best asset is your employees. The way that you actually work the best with your employees is to identify like on the individual basis, what they're good at, what they're not good at, who they are, what motivates them and so on. And a lot of times that's all driven by that derives from the identity or the mm -hmm. culture that they grew up in. So going back to your question, what does it mean to be an Asian at work? I think it depends. Depends on your role. Are you a people leader? Are you a CEO? Are you an individual contributor? What can you bring to the table, even from your identity? Not to always say we have to stand up against other people, but I think a lot of times from a cultural standpoint is the best organizations are diverse. Period. I can talk a little bit about my own experience of building a diverse team on my team that was high performing. But so that was a hard evidence for me, a validation. But if we say if that is true, then what kind of safe space or what kind of environment a leader is building that allows that to flourish within the organization? Sure. Uh, yeah. When I think about the other coming back to that part of this and what it means for me to be an Asian American at work, I just realized it's interesting because I never thought about it. And what I mean by that is that, yeah. Yes, I know what it feels like to be the other. There's times where I have been in meetings or events and I'm like, okay, I'm the only person here. But beyond that, I never really think about how that might actually affect me. Can you maybe paint that picture a little bit in terms of what does that actually mean for Asian employees? Why should they worry or care or think about the fact that they're different? No, that's a good question. I think a lot of times it's two-way street. It's not only just how we feel and what we bring to the table, but also being aware of how we're being seen and how we're being represented. So I think one example that I can provide is not so much in Silicon Valley, because in Silicon Valley, we have a big Asian American population in tech. But if I was in Los Angeles anywhere else, and when somebody asked me, what do you do, Dennis? And I tell them I work in tech. The first reaction oftentimes is, are you an engineer or are you a product manager? Right. So the immediate reaction of that is the perception if you're Asian, you're probably an engineer in tech. But the funny thing is, I've always been on the business and revenue side of it. But mm. there's not a lot. Even till these days, when I talk to my buddy who are in sales organizations, there's not too many of us out there. But what does no. that mean? It doesn't mean that we're bad at influencing, we're bad at closing deals. It's just not a lot of us out there. So right. look at it from the other perspective as 
When you go into a meeting room and of the people that don't know you yet at work, what are people mm -hmm. thinking in their head? And this is just psychology 101. People take the shortest cut to pattern match and pattern recognize who you are. They basically make perception of who you are. So the question is, when you walk in a room, before you introduce yourself, what's other people's perception of you as an Asian person in that room, in whatever mm -hmm. specific industry? Are they right. looking at you as a leadership material? Are they looking mm -hmm. at you, oh, maybe John is the VP of sales here. And right. that's a very different types of conversation. That's going to influence the other people, whether they can help you, sponsor you, mentor you or even mm -hmm. look at your different lights because what they right. can't imagine, what they can't see, they're just not going to do. I remember a study that was done, I think this was around 2011 or something like that, where they took a look at perceptions of leadership amongst the differences between how people view Caucasians and Asian Americans. And they found that basically identified Asian people as being, I think it was, highly competent. So they were seen as highly competent and highly capable, whereas they saw the white person in the testing as being what they call charismatic leadership. So they're typically seen as masculine, charismatic, in control of his or her destiny. And as a result, Asian people often get slotted into, or I would even say trained to, go into positions of middle management. As you said, maybe you're somebody who's managing numbers. You're somebody who's managing the programming. Maybe something like lower management, great number twos, but not seen as somebody who's meant for number one. Those reports are definitely true and still valid at this point. I remember there's a recent report that came out, even in technology, for example, tech companies. And I don't want to name specific companies because the numbers may fluctuate, may be wrong. But a world general in tech, Asian Americans are well represented in a sense mm -hmm. of it's probably around 40% within engineering roles uh, and also Massive. product. Yeah, that's massive. But when you look at leadership position, and when we talk about executive leadership, that's VP and C levels, and that number really dwindled down to even anywhere between two to four percent, I would say. And obviously, the higher you get at CEO level, that's two percent. You look at it right. from that number standpoint, and also just overall, Asian records represent six percent of the working force, but. Mm -hmm. Level, we're about 2%. So we highly, huh. yeah, we're under an index. And you could say, interesting. There's a lot of different variables of reasons that come into that. Mm -hmm. I would just tell you this that was a big issue for me because go to Shopify. So mm -hmm. when I first started Shopify, it's a Canadian company. And what I recognized at the culture there, it was pretty high touch and high care. There's a lot of great people there, right? Different resources of ERG groups and so on. What's an ERG group? Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. ERG is an acronym that stands for Employee Resource Group. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, different companies, as companies, will have ERGs for women, for LGBTQ, for Asian. Black. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on like how big and how big the organization and how much the resources are. No, I was just going to ask you exactly what you're answering, which is, and when you're at Shopify, for example, you were running the Asian ERG. Is that correct? That's correct. And the way I came about was first having a conversation with our chief diversity officer, addressing questions very specifically on leadership development, because of my own experience in everything you just talked about, like when we study what a great leader looks like mm -hmm. traditionally has been people like Jack Well. Howard Schultz, sure. my yeah. leaders of the world. And don't yes. get me wrong, they're great at what they do, but there's a lot more. We don't talk about Jerry Yang's of Yahoo. We don't talk about Satya Nadella mm -hmm. of Microsoft. We don't talk mm -hmm. about a lot of other great Asian descent CEOs. And why is that? Those are all fantastic leaders. And 
I can bet you their career trajectory and personal life trajectory were very different than Jack Welch and Howard Schultz. So when I brought another cheap diversity, hold on a second. What would you suggest that difference to be? We don't have to specifically talk about Jack Welch or any specific person, but on a whole, what would the trajectory of these two people, both leadership material, clearly, one Asian, one non-Asian, what's the difference? I think right off the bat, okay, so this is going to be generalizing. Totally generalizing, yeah. But on the general sort of scope of somebody mm -hmm. who is an immigrant, when you first immigrated here, you may not speak the language. I think language is a huge part of hurdle of of yourself being recognized and being promoted with this workplace of the way that you're being perceived on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Because language is the first form of communication. And also the way a lot of these folks have immigrant descent. Like, what does that mean in terms of resources? And also the location that they grew up in. Jack Welch and Jack Welch and Bob, like they grew up in the United States at a great time. At a time where certain industries were flourishing. They went to the right school. They met the right people. They were in the industry that's growing. Versus somebody who perhaps came from India or China or other countries who have to come here and may not even have enough resources to go into the Ivy League schools, the top schools. So as we know, from a networking perspective, you're basically at a disadvantage or you grew up in an area that's not as affluent. Then, you know, that once again, whether it's education or network, you're much more on the disadvantage level than other people. So I think you know, those types of trajectories are very different and obviously we're generalizing, but we don't I guess my main point is we don't hear those stories, right? What I would have loved on a personal basis, tell me a story of an immigrant who somebody came here, mm -hmm. have to overcome the language issue. Tell, yeah. tell me somebody who has gone from finance to another field and mm -hmm. how the transferable skills actually make them special in that sense. How is that person over able to overcome being an immigrant or some of the racist activities and use that as a fuel to accomplish what they're accomplishing now and use that sure. as a learning lesson to build a more equitable workplace on their team? Like, I would love to hear that. Yeah. So is it storytelling? That is something that I guess I think of and I go, yeah, the math here doesn't add up. I'm not the best at math, but 6% overall population. By the way, that's a big number. I was looking at the actual stats the other day. And I think in the US, we're just talking about Asian residents. It was something like 24 million. It's a big number. That's the third. If we were to put all the Asian people into one state, that's the third largest state in America. That's a big number. So we only represent 2% of top level leaders. The first question I got like at is why? Is this a systemic issue and we need better DEI and we need to promote Asian leadership more? More than that. And you mentioned storytelling and narratives, which is getting Asian people to share more of their journeys. But is that it? Is there anything else? Yeah, so absolutely. I think that's the first thing, right? This is a very complex issue. It's a systemic, totally. it's a systematic issue. It would take more than just one sort of solution. But sure. I think storytelling solves the issue of representation. And I think you're starting to see mm. that outside the corporate realm in the media entertainment space that started yeah. from Crazy Rich Asia, right? Like all the way to like the recent release of, you know, Versailles, Versailles, and Versailles. Yeah. now Shang -Chi, Shang, -Chi, yeah. Yeah. Shang Chi studios are seeing it, whether they're seeing it from the perspective, oh, it's good to do diverse films or maybe 80% of what they're betting on is these people are actually bringing dollars at the end of the day, whatever it's going to be, yeah. like, I'll take it. But yeah. the fact is, we know our capability at the corporate workplace. And this is also generalizing, like we're immigrants that build on hardworking ideal of how we should live. A lot of us grew up with that teaching. So a lot of times we bring that, if anything else, we bring that to the workplace. I know we're capable. 
I know we can accomplish a lot of things in general. What I don't see what's lacking is recognition of our work and being able to reward it for the good work that we're doing. As in being recognized by your supervisors or are we even not recognizing our own work and our own brilliance? A little bit, but more pertinent or more outcome driven, you would say, um, yeah. would be the former as you're talking about. We're not you, getting enough recognition. Yeah. Are you mm-hmm. getting those shout outs? Are you being reviewed fairly? The coach, the mentor, do you have the champion? That's the most mm-hmm. important thing is that everybody can talk about. Mentorships mm-hmm. are great. Having a sponsor, having a champion, even more than mm-hmm. the corporate right. environment. Yeah. So those are all the things. So I think that kind of fits into the narrative of storytelling is very important because that's the mm-hmm. first big win. If we start telling all these great stories, all these great things that our leaders are doing. Now, when you walk into the room, or when I walk into the room, somebody may just ask me whether I'm managing the entire revenue team instead of seeing me as a product or engineer, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. I'm not that smart, but I'm I'm on the business side of it. So I think that is the first step in. The second step in, which actually we started working on at Shopify, was developing a leadership development program for Mm. people who are underrepresented. And Mm. at that time, that included Black, Latinx, and Asians. And so you create, we created a space where it was very interesting because people came in and started talking about the challenges that they face, which a lot of times it became like a borderline therapy session, but it's very Mm. telling of some of the things that people are facing, they feel like are unfair. But what are they saying? So I think a lot of times, and once again, but there's some specific sort of scenarios I can disclose, but a lot of times it is recognition. It is mm. what do you do? And this could be a little bit more pertinent to like Asian diaspora where some people are more introverted and mm. some people don't speak up as much. They put their head down, do their work. And so how do you get recognized? How do you get promoted when that is who you are? What do you need to do. So that conversation go into, okay, what are some of the tactical or mechanics or some of the stuff that we should be able to do? Give it one example. How do you introduce yourself? That's the first thing. And you'll be surprised that a lot of people, especially in the early on in their career, if they were stuck in the elevator with the CEO, then the CEO turn around and say, hey, Dennis, what do you do with this company? I have no idea what to say. Oh my gosh. Or their pitch yeah. is not succinct enough where to have that sort of 10 seconds. As a CEO, I want to know what you do for my company and what do you do here and how we can work better together. It's that. Totally. And also, given another scenario, which is a little bit more relevant to today as everybody's virtual, a lot of people are virtual. When you're in the big meeting with cross-functional leaders, do you make a point to speak up instead of being faded in the background? And I think that's very important. And as a leader, for example, are you creating a space or the processes that you're hearing the feedbacks or the opinions of everyone on your team? Or are you the kind of leader that just kind of, you know, create a space for people there? As we know, there are people that are outspoken than the others, and usually 80%, those are the people that are talking. It's those sort of dynamic and back and forth of individual contributor leadership. And what does that mean by recognizing all these cultural nuances or cultural conditionings that may affect people from Asian descent? Totally. So what I'm hearing here is this is something that we got to change systemically at a corporate level, at a leadership level. We need to have better systems in place in which hard work is not only rewarded, but recognized and being promoted 
and so that we're not just waiting for the employees themselves to speak up for themselves and that we're actually seeking out to make sure that they're seen and heard. That's one thing that I'm hearing. Something else I'm hearing a lot is the importance of creating systems and structures for mentorship and for employees to see and have people that they can go to resource groups to get more information, understand how to climb that ladder, so to speak. And it sounds like a big one is making sure there's enough education on communication styles. How do we speak up? So this is all great for those who are running organizations. What about for the rank and file? What about for the rest of us who are just, okay, I'm an employee. I'm an Asian employee. I'm good at what I do. I know this. I've worked my butt off. I went to grade school. I'm good at what I do. I'm still not getting recognized. My company, however, isn't putting the money where their mouth is. They're not putting together ERGs and they're not putting together resources. And I feel a little bit under-recognized like the people who sat in your offices. What do we do? I think one thing is to recognize that it's not enough to work hard in, hmm. in a Western environment. At the end of the day, I think it's just table stake to work hard. It's table stake just to be good at your job. But at the end of the day, no matter where you're selling, no matter what kind of services you're providing, this is a people business. You have to be able to build relationships. You have to be able to build good relations, solid relationships. That's hmm. deeper than something a little bit more transactional. So I think that's one thing to recognize. And the question, this is on an individual basis, is that how do you build relationships and who do you build relationships with? When it comes to mentorship, I think it's important. I would honestly admit that I never really have mentored in my life. And I actually took it from a sense of just in a very technical term, who's my mentor? I think everybody mm -hmm. I met I feel is my mentor. I can always learn something from each person. And mm -hmm. so I think in that sense, mentorship doesn't need to be so official. I think certain things don't need to be so technical. But mm -hmm. if you could, this is something I suggest people that came to me or people that have mentored is that to build what you would call a personal sort of board of directors. Look at yourself as a company. As a board of directors, mm -hmm. your relationship with four or five people as an example, maybe from a diverse industry, but people that actually that you have some familiarity with and that are vested in your own personal interest as well as your career and have check-ins with those people. Almost do it like a cadence of a company where you're doing quarterly report, except you're doing personal career report. And this is a two-way relationship. And obviously you want to be able to build it to the extent so you can ask that person to do it. It doesn't need to be, I personally don't feel like it doesn't need to be so official to be titled as a mentorship. So I think that's helpful. The other thing is sponsorship in the company. I think once you get to the middle manager and also like director or VP level, I think it's good to have that sort of sponsor. You're going to need sponsorship in a bigger company. And I think that relationship is a little bit different. That relationship, if I were to sum it up simply, is who's bringing up your name when you're not in the room? That would be great. That would be great to have somebody who's promoting and selling you. And the first question I come to mind is like, Dennis, how do I build somebody? Do I just start finding my next godfather? And like, how do I find somebody who will promote me and be a sponsor for me? Good question. It's a two-way street, just like a relationship. It's like mm -hmm. any sort of relationship, whether it's friendship or more intimate relationship. It's not always easy. You're going to need to find someone. If you want to be strategic, you want to find someone within your company, somebody who perhaps is in the role that you want to get to, somebody who has enough authority and credibility within the organization. And I think most importantly, somebody who you can get along with, genuinely get along with. And by building that relationship, isn't just going to that person and say, hey, would you be my sponsor or champion? Because mm -hmm. on the other hand, this is the sort of the empathetic part that it has to be considered is that in a way, if somebody is bringing your name in a room that you're not in, it's also that person's credibility is going to stem 
from your work and the ability that you're going to be able to deliver. So that takes time in terms of, it could be just, hey, Dennis, today I have a project. Let's just say it was me. It was somebody else that I want to be, would love to get as my sponsor. I may go to that person. Mm-hmm. It's a coffee chat. Ask that person, what's your priority? What are you facing as challenges right now? Is there anything that can help? Mm-hmm. But other than that, take a more proactive approach. Let's just mm-hmm. say that person, her name is Jennifer, for example. I say, Jennifer, I have a little bit of time outside of my day-to-day work. And here is what I think that could help you do your job better or solve your challenges. And let me put together some plan. This is what I could do. That's a great way to build that camaraderie right off the bat because it shows, one, you're motivated. Two, the second thing, you better deliver. <laughs> so that's building <laughs> trust, I think, is a very mm-hmm. important thing. It's funny. It's basic. It's foundational, but a lot of people are not great at But building that trust to be able to say, this is mm-hmm. what I'm going to deliver, and you deliver on time. Then you start building from there. And once they're familiar with your caliber of your work, they're much more confident to be in the room and said, oh, guess what? Davis is great at this. He's not in this room, but maybe I can talk and take on this project. Then you mm-hmm. take on better, higher visibility project. You look good. Jennifer looks good. And everybody's happy. Got it. I love that point that you said about building trust, I think is something we don't really think about very often. How do we build trust? Do you have any quick advice around how do we communicate in such a way that builds trust? You said, make sure whatever you say, do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else? So for me, trust has two elements. One is as simple as just do what you said you were going to do. Come back. Whether this is sending out an email, whether this is just responding to a text, whether this right. is just continuing conversation that got cut off or delivering on a project that may seem simple. For people who are good leaders, they're very aware. And these mm. little things really do matter, whether at all levels. And once again, like I mentioned, this sounds really simple, but I promise you 80% of the people don't do this. They just mm. don't. But it's the 20% that do. The people that recognize it, they understand they can build that trust. The second element of building trust to me is time. So it can't be rushed because it's mm. the clarity of, of each That's other, huge. what our motivations are, what our passions are, what we're good at, what we're not good at. So we're all on the same page. So I think those are the two really components. And when it comes to like building trust, it's a good start. I love that. Thank you for that. Now you're building the otherness group. How would you sum up the core message of the otherness group as a movement? What is the core of what this is about? Oh boy, John, this is a building. Not a, like I don't, <laughs> not put you on the spot. we don't want to go into this. Yeah. If you want to take more time to let it brew, we'll move I, on. I would say this is a tagline, which I just came up with and I've been using it. I don't know if this sums it up, but yeah. And besides a very tech sort of leaning lingo is that to me, otherness is a feature, not a bug. Going back to what we talk about, we often see and also think about otherness as something negative. It's not a bug, Mm -hmm. it's a feature. We lean, we reframe it, we see it that way. Throughout my life, where I mentioned just different points of being the other and just having that sort of untraditional sort of career trajectory, what I often tell a lot of companies now, a lot of people that come to me is the feature I've been able to build out of being the other in all these different types of environments and situations is that I come out with very different innovative strategies, whether it's revenue growth or it's cost savings that a lot of times other people perhaps in my peer are not able to think of. And that's mm-hmm. only because I have had this sort of diverse type of experience. So from an innovation perspective, that's first and foremost. When you have a very interesting, unique perspective, nobody thinks about things the way you do. Nobody can solve mm-hmm. something like you do. And that in itself is a unique proposition that people will pay you for. 
So that's a very sort of business way of looking at things. So like I said, it's a feature and own it. I love it. It's a feature and own it. It's not a bug. It doesn't make you lesser. It makes you better. It's superpower. Now I've exhausted everything that I've been <laughs> trying to go through and ask. Is there anything else that I haven't asked that you would like to talk about? Yeah, I think we covered quite a bit. Oh man, jam-packed. You were just dropping truth bombs left and right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think maybe what would be fun is for me to ask you a question. Yeah. What would you say as you remember, and don't think too hard on this, what would be a moment in your life feeling like you're the other? And how has that affected, impacted you currently? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I think that there was always a sense in the back of my head ever since I was a kid and call this immigrant trauma, call this whatever you want. But I've always been really keen on the sense of belonging. I think it's because when I was growing up, I moved a lot of schools. My parents moved around a lot. I went to three different elementary schools, four different high schools. And I never really found a community where I felt like I fully belonged. To be very direct, the answer was all the time. I joined a fraternity when I was in university. And I want to be clear about this, is that I didn't feel like anyone ever excluded me. But I always felt internally like there was a slight distance. Like there was a sense that I don't fully belong here. And I didn't know how to bridge that gap. And I remember going to these parties at a fraternity as one do. And I would see all of my friends drinking and they're like, there is a sense that like they were comfortable being in the room where I felt like I needed to perform. Mm. And that what I mean by perform is like, I felt like I needed to find the right thing to say. I need to find the right way to be, the right swagger, the right attitude, the right vibe to belong. But then I lost me. Okay. So in a jet with a question really quick because yeah of that's course really, that's that a lot of people feel the way you do personal mm -hmm. life at work as well right we have this persona that we mm -hmm. feel like well, yeah we code switch we yeah me too that persona that you're talking about to be in a certain way or speak a certain way is that from another actual person you've seen or is that some model or archetype that you have in your head of who you should be? yeah great question in my own work, I talk about that a lot of Asian American clients that I work with, I see a seven major patterns. And one of these patterns that I talk about is this pattern called the chameleon. So I had a very strong chameleon pattern. And what I mean by that is that to answer your question, it wasn't one. It was whoever I was with. Whoever I was with, I found, and I used to take pride in this, that I'm like, oh yeah, I could fit in anywhere. You could throw me into an opera house or you could throw me into a rave in the middle of Manhattan and I'll find a way to belong because I got really good at picking up what their language were, picking up their body language, picking up their vibe, picking up their opinions. And I got really good at mirroring that. And that was a conscious decision for survival. But then later on, it wasn't one person. It was every person, every person I talked to, every person, every room I was being. And I didn't realize that in doing so, I was not only sacrificing my own voice, but I was the problem. I was not allowing myself to fully take place in that room. Yeah, that's a very well put answer that. And how do you think that's impacted what you do now who you are? There was a long process that I had to go through when I realized what I was doing. And I had to go through and identify why I didn't feel like I was worthy to be in that room. And that self-rejection came from essentially when I was growing up and in a more traditional upbringing, I was oftentimes told, oh, no, don't do this. Don't do it this way, you know, this way. And if you're in this room, this is what you should do. And I think I always grew up a little bit scared that I was doing things wrong, that I wasn't speaking the right language, that I wasn't using the right 
right? Tonality. So I learned it as a survival mechanism. And when I discovered that, my process of discovery was to lean into self-ownership. So now I think I landed in the middle, which is to say, I now can fit in places. And that helps in my role as a speaker and a coach and that I'm able to create safer spaces by mirroring the room of others. But when I'm with my friends, I'm just me. <laughs> yeah. And for better or for worse, whether you like me or not, I'm just me. You can have judgments and that's your responsibility to deal with. There's that self-ownership that took some time for me to go through, not through therapy and inner work. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Like, I think a lot of us also feel the same way. What you mentioned is that adaptability came from the need to survive. And mm -hmm. once you start owning who you are and express it unapologetically, okay. now you're thriving. Now you're ready to thrive. For whatever it's worth, John, I find you really charming as is. So <laughs> thank yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, like big charming energy. It's a big Asian thing. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the question. I've never had someone ask me a question before on this show. So I really appreciate that. Dennis, if our listeners want to find out more about you, what's the best way to do that? I think the best way to reach out to me will be on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there. You can just on the search bar, dial it, type in Dennis Yaoyu, Y-A-O, Y-U. You'll be able to find me there. That's great. We're going to also make sure that we put the links that you have into the show notes. So if you want to learn more about Dennis, his otherness project, and all the incredible work that he is going to put out into making the world a better, happier place for all of us, go check it out. Thank you once again so much for your time, Dennis. You've been a rock star. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me, John. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month. So you can go out there and own your big Asian energy. <laughs>